Welcome to another episode on The Francisca Show. Today, we're doing a special for Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. And just before we start, I want to remind you that next week we will be recording a panel on birth control and Judaism featuring Rabbi Scott Khan, sex therapist Tali Rosenbaum, and Rebetzin Rifke Friendlich, who is also a Yo Etzad Halacha. Make sure to click on the show notes right now to get yourself registered. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to this podcast. It really means a lot to me. I also want you to know that my sixth album is live. It's on Apple. It's on Spotify. I'm also printing some hard copies. So if you would like one, click on the show notes. This project took four years, and I'm just so incredibly grateful that it's finally done. Back to Mother's Day. Enjoy this special. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today I am doing a Mother's Day special, and I have my mother on here. It is such a long time coming because my mother is all the things we have had on the show and so much more. And I am excited to do an episode that's dedicated specifically to mothers and even more specifically to mine. So welcome to the show. Please introduce yourself to us, your name, and there is this long custom, this old tradition that we, you don't say your, your parents' name, right? Did you teach me that? Oh, okay, so my <laughs> name, <laughs> I think I taught you that. Okay, so my name is Dara Goldschmidt, and I am the very happy mother of Francisca, who I also call Brady, mostly call Brady. <laughs> and um, yeah, Brady is just one of the lights of my life. Well, let's talk more about that. But before then, talk to me a little bit about your upbringing, your life's mission. I know you have a fire inside of you that I probably got a part of that. Okay, I can talk to you about that. I'm just wondering if it's not going too far off target about mothering. Okay, oh, actually, let me introduce myself and say that from the earliest age, it was my dream to be a mommy. And I remember that I had this hot water bottle and I used to wrap it up in a blanket and it would just be this warm, squishy feeling. And I would not let go of that hot warm water bottle the whole day. It was my baby. And I was just thrilled to have a real live baby. <laughs> so in honor of Mother's Day, I'll just bring up that memory of my earliest desire to be a mommy. I'll narrate a little bit and I'll share a little bit about your story so we could just have some context before we dive deep into mother-daughter talk. So my mother grew up in Muncie, New York and is one of five children. Ever since she was a little girl, she wanted to move to Israel and live in Israel. And after going to Sharfman's and then Stern, my mother met my father after dating for a while. <laughs> Didn't happen so fast. Um, my parents... 11 dates. 11 dates, but 36 uh, shadachim. Oh. <laughs> it wasn't like your first shadach was my daddy, right? Okay. And during Sheva Brachos, you got on a plane and went to the promised land for good, or so you thought. And 
the first few years you lived in Bait Bagan and then you moved to the Nazareth, Nasrat Elite, where uh, daddy started a kolel, right? And you were prepared, you majored in English literature and you were prepared to do shetels and support your husband in kolel. That was the dream. <laughs> but then that didn't work out so well. Tell me why. <laughs> no, I don't mind telling you, but it's interesting. Did we ever even discuss this? So yeah, so after Sharfman's, I really did have this very intense dream to marry someone who was sitting and learning. And also my sister at that point had was married to a very serious learner and she had a big influence on my way of thinking so that when I went to Sharfman's, I was ready for, for that message. And I left Sharfman's thinking that for sure that was my dream. And when I was going out with daddy. He, he I think he, he was, all, he was at the same time studying for his master's in computers as he was learning in Nair Yisrael and he could have gone either way. But I said, no, we have to go to Israel and you have to learn in Kolel. And this is my dream. I remember when Omama said, but you have to earn an honest living. And Daddy said, no, if I'm not going to go and learn, <laughs> this shidduch won't come to be. And what I really liked about Daddy was that he understood that it's not exactly my upbringing, but it's my dream. And let's just say, I think that he, <laughs> I don't know if he expected me to go the full nine yards, if that's the expression. So. You know, once we started out on those first two beautiful and even idyllic kolel years in Yerushalayim, when I understood that without parental support, there's no way that we can really make it. And I didn't like the feeling of being supported by our parents. So we tried to uh, discover <laughs> another route to lead a Torah true life and Torah inspired life. Beautiful. So, long story short, you go to the Nazareth, and you're living amongst Arabs, right? So it's not the safest place? No. Not really. We're near The Arab city of Natsrat was nearby, but Natsrat was created to be the Jewish city above, above Nazareth. And you had two little boys at that point, age three little and two? Adorable. Two and one? Aged, aged one zero. and zero. <laughs> Okay, and then you get a call and you move to Moscow. And we stayed there for two years. And I think the call came during our second year there. It had always also been my dream to go to Russia. <laughs> Talk about that dream a little bit. So when I was in third grade, my parents took me to a demonstration to free Soviet Jewry in New York City. And I really had never heard of Soviet Jewry. But I knew that my ancestors came from greater Russia and fled the pogroms in the earliest, early 20th century. I was so shocked that so many, 3 million of our Jewish brothers and sisters were locked behind the Iron Curtain with no Yiddishkeit and no Torah, and no Tefillah. And as a child, I just said, how, how could I ever connect with them? But it was impossible because it was closed off. And then perestroika happened in 85, 86, and we got the phone call in 80, 
88, and we went in 89. It sounded like an exciting once-in-a-lifetime experience that would look amazing on a resume, something that you would do and come back, except that didn't happen. Right. (laughs) You are still technically living there. So yeah, so we went for a year, but I was ready to say amazing year, and now let's go back and live our pre-programmed lives. But Daddy really loved it, and we ended up staying for another year and another year. I think after eight years, I stopped saying one more year. I just accepted the situation. You embraced it with full <laughs> But I remember for many years thinking to myself, I am working as if this were my last year here. I'll do the best I can. I'll do the most. I'll go the extra mile because imagine I would be leaving next year. I have so much to accomplish. I really got a lot done in those years when I said, could you imagine living every day of our lives? This is the last time in my life. I'm going to read more. I'm going to learn more. I'm going to dive more. <laughs> Imagine growing up with a mother <laughs> who's laying such uh, achievement goals <laughs> onto children as of living every day <laughs> like it's your last day, which is not something I experienced personally. Let's talk about some of the basic things that mothers may take for granted in countries like the U.S. or Israel that you did not have available to you as a mother in the 90s in Russia? Okay, so I would say the most pressing thing as far as mothering was that the kindergarten that my children went to when when our oldest were little, when Dovi and were little, was my kindergarten. So when I knew that the teacher was sick, I knew that the kids didn't get enough that week. And I always felt the pressure that I must fill in all of the missing pieces of what the limited education that we could provide didn't manage to fit in. So there was always this sense of having, I I remember I was so nervous when Omama was coming to visit and I said, Benji, you must learn the olive phase. If you don't know it and Omama comes, I will be in big trouble. (laughs) I was crying. Learn it. (laughs) And then I remember Omama came and after half an hour, she said, okay, Benji Lee, take out the Aleph Bey's book. And I was like shivering. Benji, just don't make any mistakes. And then Benji said the Aleph Bey's and Omama said, very good, but you're mixing up the end the letters. Well, if anyone would like to listen to Omama's episode, my (laughs) grandmother and my mother's mother-in-law, you should check out the Holocaust special we did for International Holocaust Remembrance Day. That was a very special episode. I really enjoyed listening to their stories. Thank you. The kindergarten that turned into a full-fledged school, pre-K through 11th grade. We don't have 12th grade in Moscow. The responsibility of the funding and the school, the education, the post-education, providing religious experience, that was all on your shoulders, as well as being a communal Rebetzin who hosted a Shabbos every Shabbos to an unknown amount of guests because people didn't RSVP <laughs> or get invited. It was whoever just came home from shul. No, but also you were such a big help with that because you used to invite your friends. You used to have a Shabbatons and Shalashadas with your friends. I remember. And I just felt so much that I'm not alone doing it by myself. And I really felt you were all partnering. Thank you. Made it fun, like a family adventure. I enjoyed that. I enjoy meeting new people. Yes, I enjoy that part as well. And I was always very concerned that you should love it and not resent it. That was also always a fear of mine. 
But Baruch Hashem, we always had nice help. Talk to me about help and accepting help. I remember in the beginning, it was a strange thing, almost like if I have to have help, that means I can't manage on my own. And then I understood, no, if you have help, you can accomplish so much more. So I think that that was a real key to being able to function and accomplish a lot in terms of community building, school building, because someone was helping me take care of the basics, keep the fort down. But more than that, you would you would go back to the States to give birth <laughs> to myself or any other siblings, and you'd be back within weeks. As soon as you can get the passport for the baby, you'd be back in Moscow, which is a 10-hour flight for anyone th- wondering, and you'd be in the classroom the next day with a kangaroo. <laughs> So I remember that happening. I remember that happening twice with Rachel. Oh, actually with you too. But when I came back with you as a little tiny baby, I wasn't really teaching so much. I was more just overseeing and training the teachers. So I used to bring in this um, pack and play and the ladies in the kitchen would watch you (laughs) in the kindergarten. But the laws changed. That would never fly today. You would never be allowed to bring a baby but when I came back with Rachel one month after she was born, I just said, I did not have babies to leave them home. I'm just going to put her in the kangaroo and I'll come in and I'll teach the class. And the kids took it just very naturally. Very naturally. I, I like to say I've been learning Torah since I was a newborn. <laughs> and what about just basic Jewish necessities or Jewish commodities that you lacked having? I remember when I wanted to move to Israel, my mother said, Bubby said, do not expect me to send care packages if you want to move there so you'll get used to the Israeli mayonnaise. I hear my friends have to send mayonnaise and they have to send American ketchup. So if you plan to go there, just plan to manage on Israeli products. Had no problem. But the truth of the matter is, I really try to do that in Moscow as well. I, I didn't really ever want to ask people to bring me food kind of stuff. Mostly I try to manage with what I could get there. You can get always get the basics. Sometimes I schlep myself, but rarely. So this was pre-my time, but did you ever stand in those Soviet lines for food? Yes. What was that like? Um, for or food? What? I don't think I stood in line for food, but I used to stand in line when I saw big lines around a store that would be selling toys. So I would say, oh, what, what are they standing in line for? Oh, sleds? Only 13 rubles? Which is how much in dollars? Maybe it was 50 cents for this big, beautiful wooden sled that I'm going to stand on that line. I remember I stood on line for sleds and I stood on line for woolen blankets once. And I stood on line for these beautiful cars that Dovi and Benji used to drive around them. I love those. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly I didn't like to stand on line. <laughs> Things were very cheap, but impossible to get, basically. Right. And I remember you mentioning a story about getting fish, some beautiful fresh fish, and feeling like everyone was eyeing you like you have something illegal that everyone else wants and can't get. No, that wasn't fish. That was baby diapers, pampers. The first year that we were there, that was still the autumn of 1989, they told me I could get baby diapers in um, Gum. It was a stockman store in Gum, and the, the store windows were all papered in white so that regular people couldn't look in and see what they had in there. I had to pay with a credit card, and 
the second I walked out with those Pampers boxes, I was literally 15 people crowded around me begging for me to sell that, sell those Pampers. And I was so scared. I didn't understand Russian. I didn't know what they were trying to do. So like I tried to run away with my Pampers boxes. But later, someone explained to me what was going on, that somehow those people had foreign currency and they wanted to reimburse me maybe four times what I paid to be able to get those campers. So what did you use instead of diapers or did you always have access? No, I, I always went to that store and I always, I always had pampers. Incredible. Diapers, whatever, disposable diapers. <laughs> so I never had to deal with, but that's why Russian babies were toilet trained at nine months because parents was a burden to have those cloth diapers. Oh, yes. Even though people who are interested in the environment are devoted to cloth diapers today, probably. My coaches. And she's a millionaire. And they use rags and rags for instead of toilet paper. Yes, as well. Okay. So let's go a little deeper into mothering. Now that we got some of the basics out of the way, just showing what you had to deal with. (laughs) Going back to third world. Now Moscow is completely different for anyone thinking, and I grew up with diapers, obviously. Knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have done differently about your parenting? Well, let me ask you a question, Frady. Is there something that you would like to tell me that you would (laughs) wish that I could have done differently? Are you using a daddy strategy (laughs) on reversing the question? No, I, I, I don't. I'm not using any strategy. I really respect you so much. I can't get over how wise and perceptive and profound you are. And I would be very curious to know if you had a suggestion for me or not even if you had to go back and what could I have done differently. But right now, I just know there's a lot more awareness now that's happening around parenting and about just things to know that I think was less available before the internet, before the age of global communication. You're the wise one here. (laughs) I'm the one who calls you for parenting advice all the time. For myself, I always say you did the best you could with what you knew and what you had. And that was your attitude. And I think whatever I'm doing now as a parent, I'm going to mess up in my ways, but I'm doing the best I can with what I know and what I can do and with who I am. And that's just how it ends because we're never going to be the perfect parents. We want our kids to think we are because they see us in our most vulnerable times and spaces and we can't control who we are in front of our kids. So they know us in the deepest way until you move out. (laughs) Well, I remember 30 years ago reading Growing With My Children by Sarah Shapiro. And I really loved that book because I felt she was so, she allowed herself to be very vulnerable in that book. And I re-met her very recently. I went with Raffelli to a writing club and she's running it and wrote another book. She wrote many books, but I was able to buy the latest book. And I don't know, I just... The whole idea of growing with my children, I hope that I'll always be open enough to keep growing with my children because, of course, it's so much different now. I don't have to 
take care of little children. That's that's very hard. Thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that because all the podcasts I listen to about parenting, they keep saying how, yes, toddlers are hard. We'll wait till they get older. <laughs> that's going to be the easy peasy stuff. Oh, well, everything is hard in its own way, I guess, and challenging in its own way. But right now, because you don't have any little children at home, and Baruch Hashem, you're all such adults, and I just hope that I could keep growing with you. I always want to stay so close, and I really have to thank you, because you make such an effort to stay connected. And like, I, of course, want to be close to you, because I'm the mommy. But I also don't want to be that mother who's falling all the time and being annoying. So I have to have my own life so that I don't become this, oh, my mother's calling. I think you have such an ingrained feeling of becoming that burden that I have to chase you so hard to get you <laughs> on the phone. I have to I have to book appointments with you so I could talk to you. <laughs> Sometimes I even have to pay for coaching so that we can get to talk. We have done that as well. And that was so wonderful. That really was. I love that it was on my schedule and it was a whole hour. It's great. <laughs> and I just couldn't get over the kind of questions you asked and the kind of sage advice you give. Really, you helped me so much. Thank you. I'm wondering if it was ethical, but I'm not a therapist. So, <laughs> <laughs> do you have any episodes or stories that you can share? Some teachable moments? Maybe that involves me. No, and I'm no, and I'm looking at you. So, what would I suggest? I had such a strict sense of what I expected, and I was so sure that I was in control of your choices. And unfortunately, when you chose things differently than I would have liked, I I fell apart, and that was so regrettable. I regret it so much. Instead of me being the strong one, it was more like, I, I'm not getting what I want. And it was, I couldn't handle it because I thought I have to get everything exactly the way I think I need to get it. And that was such a waste of emotional strength. I think it took me a long time till I was able to come to terms with the fact that your children grow up and make their own choices. And Hashem should just keep everyone well and safe and together. That's the most important thing. Somehow, it took me a long time to come to peace with that. It's really incredible that you that you're saying this, and it makes me emotional. And I think that expectation of your kids needing to choose what you chose for them very much could have been because you you were in a in the leadership role you were modeling what a jewish orthodox family is supposed to look like for all these russian unaffiliated jews and we were these little kids who were a part of this family and we we're all supposed to do our part in it and this was supposed to be a team effort. And then when children grow up and make their own choices, <laughs> and that perhaps didn't reflect as you expected, you felt like you were disappointing your community, perhaps. And, you know, if you're showing a certain way and 
the kids aren't choosing that or not choosing that, but are finding different ways of expressing it, then I I feel like that leadership position made it even harder. Yeah. I remember there were a couple of years where it was very hard for me to teach because I just felt I should teach. I, I can't even teach my own children. They're not doing what I want. So yeah, but Baruch Hashem, I was learning that Yaakov Avinu, when Yosef was sold, he just saw the cloak dipped in blood and he was in the dark for 22 years. Hashem didn't speak with him because Hashem only speaks with people in Simcha. He wasn't in Simcha. He was in mourning. And I said, 22 years, Yaakov Avinu was sad. Hashem couldn't talk to him. And yet he still emerged after that as Yaakov Avinu, the Chir Ha'avos, the, the most choice of all of the of all of our forefathers. Okay? It's hard for me. I, I feel like I can't teach. I feel like I can't go out. Hopefully it won't take me 22 years to get out of this dark place. I hope I emerge. And also all of the challenges Yaakov had with his children. It gave me so much. I felt so comforted. By the fact, I felt not alone in those hard times. Does every parent experience those hard times? I remember speaking to Bubby about it, and I said, oh, this couple, they're, everything just goes so smoothly for them. Oh, there, and I'm, of course, I'm so happy for them, but why couldn't everything go so easily for me to also? Bubby said, stop, stop right now. You don't know what's happening anywhere. God should help everyone, everything, everything one should get it easy, but just be grateful for what you have. Look inside, don't look outside. Keep on the focus. Keep the positive. Mainly just be grateful. Count your blessings and all those cliches, which are so, so true. We could tap into them. I, no, I just think it's a credit to you that you had such, you, ha- you have such a big soul and such a creative personality and such a beautiful voice and such gift. And each person has their own on their own journeys. I would have liked to dictate exactly what everyone chooses and does. <laughs> no, and when I and I really did think for too many years that it was my decision and was my that's why I was so shocked and confused. And unfortunately, it could be that when you needed me very much, I would I might have been inaccessible because of my own shortcomings. It makes me so sad. <laughs> but I do remember, well, first of all, I, I got help. If you can find a good therapist who can help you discover yourself, it's very helpful. I felt I feel that I was very not self-aware for so long. And then when I started to get help, I realized, you know, you can change, you can grow. As long as Hashem gives you life, you can fix things. I don't know if I told you, but um, the year I was in Sharpens, a family in Netanya that took me in and were so good to me. I can't imagine how good I was able to go for Shabbos. And they took me to all over the country and they just treated me so, so well. I love them so much. And I just dreamed once I'll have a family and a home that I can also do that for other people. And then after I got married, I stayed in touch with them a little bit. But then as the years went by, I lost touch with them. And after a few years, I heard maybe to the grapevine that the mother of that family was upset at me for, I guess, for losing contact or, but I was so busy in those years. I felt very bad, but I didn't know what I could do about it. Anyway, 
years pass, years pass, almost 40 years pass. And a few weeks ago, I started to get this feeling that I feel so badly. I, I have to thank that family for all they did for me. But I could not remember their last name. I couldn't even remember the mother's name. They only remembered his name, <laughs> his first name. And I asked a few people and nobody could help me. And I just knew Hashem is going to send me the name because I knew it's somewhere in my hard drive, but I couldn't access it. And after, I think, a day or two, the name came into my mind and I was able to contact them. I was able to find through the internet there some information. I wrote to them to make sure it's the right information. I said, I, if this is you, I just want to tell you how grateful I am for everything you did for me. Let me know if this is you. So immediately, uh, Yitzhak wrote back to me and said, Sarah, of course, everything's fine. So then I wrote a long, long letter. I said, I'm writing this letter in English, but I really want you to give it to your, all your children. They have three children because I want them to know what giants their parents are. And I just wrote down all the memories I had from how amazing they were. And they wrote back, they were crying and they were thrilled and they'll always love me and I shouldn't feel badly. And I thought to myself, 40 years can go by and you can still fix something. I I'm so grateful that I had that chance. I, I just I just wonder what other things I'm missing because, you know, you forget in your life. What other things can I fix while there's still ch a chance? But one thing I can tell you that I'm so grateful for is the relationship I have with you. <laughs> you just are, I just look, I'm looking at you now, that smile, the glowing eyes. I just feel so bad. I, I caused you all that need for awareness. Even when, you were causing, <laughs> even when you were causing me all that grief, you said, I feel so bad that I'm doing this to you, mommy. <laughs> and that was a comfort to me. I guess I was trying <laughs> to tell you, I need to figure out who I am and I'm not doing this to you. said that I, I, I need to make my own mistakes. Uh, I just could not understand that. Why do you have to be so silly? Don't make any mistakes. I'll just tell you what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I just did not get it because I, I was that type of child. Do what mommy and daddy say. That's it. At least with my selective memory. But I remember discussing with Danielle. Yeah. Okay, that's Yitzchak. No problem. Hashem told Abram to kill Yitzchak. What's the problem? To do it. And then when I became a teacher and I went into these teachers groups and teachers were saying, oh, their students are saying, are coming in traumatized to the classroom saying, daddy, if Hashem tells you to kill me, will you kill me? And I said, I never thought that in my life. The teacher told us that it's wonderful. and It's a mitzvah. Don't think beyond that. I, and I asked myself, why didn't I think about that? Why didn't I think that? How could Hashem have asked that? I was very calm. Accepting. I didn't think of it as a scary story until later. My students' parents were saying, oh, for the little kids, you're teaching that story. That's that's a, my children are scared of that story. I'm like, what, what's to be traumatized? Hashem said that's it. Very traumatized. Do you have any nice memory of me being your mommy when you were little? I have tons of nice memories. <laughs> I I want to preempt or just mention how one of your parenting strategies about raising us in Moscow was to keep us so busy, we wouldn't feel like we can't go to friends' houses. 
specifically for me, I had friends' houses I could go to that had kosher and Shabbos, but not everyone, not all of the siblings had that. So you wanted us occupied with extracurriculars enough so we wouldn't feel that lack of communal or friends who are not Shomer Shabbos and Kashas. Any delicious memories? Well, I could say something about, um one of the things I loved about being your mommy was you loved to get dressed and you wanted your skirt to be the same color as your shirt and the same color as your tights and the same color. So you had a yellow outfit and a pink outfit and a blue outfit and your skirt and your shirt, everything always matched. So you were very, always very organized. It's very organized. But then I look at some of the pictures and I looked hideous and you told me I did not allow any intervention. <laughs> That was all me. I cannot blame you for how I looked at certain (laughs) points. Well, I never thought you looked hideous. Thanks. I always thought you were just the most magnificent. I some of the memories I have that are so wonderful for me are moments like, "Oh, Freddy, do you want to go learn guitar? Freddy, do you want to try dance lessons? Do you want to go to a concert?" They all happen to have that love for the arts in common, but that appreciation and encouragement, spontaneity, and anything's possible, that was very freeing for me and very liberating because anyone growing up in a mainstream community, there are communal expectations and norms, and it just seemed like you had your out-of-the-box ideas about art and appreciation for culture and developing yourself and learning the good from whoever is around you and making that accessible to me in a very, very positive way without me ever feeling like that's not something I should touch or do or you're good at it, so let's keep you away from it because it's dangerous. So that that was a lifeline for me in so many ways. He gave you to the right mother. <laughs> but I got it from my grandmother and my mother, very artsy, very encouraging. Always remember when I was little, doing a lot of figure skating and art. You also encouraged me to start my own business. And you supplied all the chocolates and whatever I needed to buy in the States. And in Israel to bring back and sell to my friends. (laughs) There were many entrepreneurship endeavors that you completely supported and never made me feel anything about not sticking with something or (laughs) not achieving the goals I desired for myself. And that was a really beautiful experience for me to have. Well, I was always amazed because when I was little, I would never have thought to sell things to anybody. And I couldn't believe that you weren't afraid to do things like that. Like, whoa. I remember a few years you reached out to me and said, Fritz, what arrangement did we have? I'd like to offer that to Ariel, my youngest brother. So I said, well, you pay for everything up front. And I made 100% profit (laughs) over everything plus 100%. I would charge 100% more, <laughs> so I would make 200%. And you said, as long as you pay tzedakah, you give your charity, you could keep it, and I will <laughs> supply everything for free for you. So what did you um, do with that money besides give your meister? I probably spent it on handbags. 
and <laughs> I loved pocketbooks. I bought Barbies. What else? I, I loved school supplies, pens, different gel pens and notebooks with Barbies on them and whatnots on them. <laughs> I sold notebooks to my friends too. And, and you just always encouraged it. You never made me feel bad about it, which is why I continue trying again and again and again, because <laughs> you have to have that spirit to keep going. And you, you encouraged it. You always did. So I think we're going to wrap up here. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And thank you. I love you so much. Happy Mother's Day, because you're the greatest mother also. <laughs> thank you so much, Mommy, for coming on. I am so happy we finally got to have you. And I'd love to just share with everyone that my mother is an artist as well. And she paints these beautiful paintings. And she has decorated the yeshiva in Moscow and the restaurant in Moscow and the school and your home and so many other people's homes with your beautiful art. That's inspired by Judaica as well as still lives, flowers, and abstract. So where can people find you? Yeah, I have an Instagram. Dara Goldschmidt. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you for doing this. I love you so much. Friend, thank you so much for listening until the end. And if you enjoyed, please tell a friend. Leave a review. And make sure to subscribe so you get a notification the next time an episode is out. Have you been thinking of launching a podcast? Great. Let me help you launch and produce your show. And take the headache away. Just click on the link in the show notes. And make sure to tune in next time. See ya!